This is week three of a series that God put on my heart for this Christmas season. And we've been looking at portraits of the Savior. You know, Christmas is a time of year when there's a lot more attention on the birth of Christ and on the life of Christ and throughout the rest of the year in our culture. And I'm so grateful for it. And as I began to study the word and pray about this Christmas season, we began to see that there are signs of the life of Christ all around us, not just in the tinsel and the lights and in the nativity and the town square, but there are some very vivid pictures of Jesus. And to just catch you up a little bit on on what we've seen, because today is going to be quite different. So far in this series, we looked at a portrait of Christ in the patriarchs. We looked specifically at one story of the life of Isaac and how his life parallels the life of Christ. And to be honest, we could have done an entire series on the portraits of Christ in the patriarchs. Stories about Moses and and Joseph and so many others whose lives foreshadowed the coming Messiah. But in week two, we took... A different direction and we looked at portraits in prophecy there is no more accurate picture of the coming of the Lord than what we see in prophecy and that's why last week we looked at five portraits that Matthew revealed in the gospel of Matthew he hung five portraits of Old Testament prophecy on display so that people could see and recognize that the Savior who was born in Bethlehem's manger, is the exact image of the Old Testament portraits we see of him in prophecy. And so we've looked at some of those messages, and both of those portraits are pictures in the past of the one who would come. Can I announce to you today, he came. He came. (coughs) It's real. There's a lot of of, of mythical stories that we love to celebrate this time of season, but this is not one of them. Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew records his genealogy, 42 generations, all the way back to Abraham, that Jesus was real, that he was born in the flesh to Mary. In fact, if you look in Luke's gospel, he goes beyond that. Luke takes us all the way back to the sixth day of creation. He takes the lineage of Jesus all the way back to Adam. And so we know that Jesus came and he lived this life. And by looking at those Old Testament portraits, the people may not have known when he would come, but they did know how he would come. Because Isaiah had told them, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel. They knew how it would happen. They might not have known exactly when it would happen, but they knew where it was going to happen. Because Micah had prophesied, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. We know who he would be. Isaiah says his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, and we knew what he would do, that he would come to save his people from their sins. We even know why he would come. The Bible says that a people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And all of these portraits in the Old Testament point to the one who would come. But my message today is not to show you another portrait of a Messiah that would come. A portrait from the past. Today I want you to see a Messiah that has come. I want you to see a portrait that we have before us. That when we look at it we can know that Jesus really is the Son of God. That Jesus really did come to save, heal and deliver and to change lives. I want to reveal a portrait of a Messiah that's coming again. You know, when you, here's the thing about art. The greatest work of art means nothing if it's not seen. Amen? 
I mean, the greatest masterpiece <coughs> only finds its value when it's appreciated, when it's seen by others. Now, there's no greater picture of Christ than what we see in prophecy and of what we see in the Word of God. But this grand image of our Savior that we have is unseen by a lot of people. It's unappreciated because they don't, they don't open the book. They don't seek out the truth. They don't discover what the Word says about Him. But the portrait that I want to talk to you about today is so important. And the reason that it's important is for this very reason. The fact that this portrait is seen by everybody. The portrait of God's Word is God's greatest revelation of Himself to mankind. But so many people don't read it. So many people don't see it. But there is a portrait that they do read. And there is a portrait that they do see that communicates who Jesus is. It's a portrait that God left on display in the earth so that everyone would see it and know that Jesus not only came, but that he's alive. That he did come to fulfill the mission that God sent him on, to save, to redeem mankind. He said, it's not the healthy who need a physician, it's the sick. Jesus said, I've come to seek and save the lost. And that message and that mission is illustrated when we look at this portrait. And the portrait that I'm talking about is the people. It's you. You and I this morning are the greatest portrait to the world of the Savior. To many people, you're the only gospel they're ever going to read. They'll never, they'll never read what Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John had to say about him. They'll never read the testimony of, of the formerly blind man, Bartimaeus. They're going to look at your life. If they want to know that Jesus came to change people, they're going to know it by the picture that your life paints of how a life can be changed by Jesus. I want to share a scripture with you as we launch into this this morning in Colossians chapter 1. As you grab a hold of this reality today that you are the greatest portrait of Jesus in the earth. Here's what it says, Colossians chapter 1 verse 27. Look at it on the screen. To them, that's the Lord's people, that's you and me. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Can I tell you, this is the mystery of the, the gospel this morning. <coughs> the mystery of the gospel is that God would send his son Jesus, not just to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem, but that that same Jesus comes to live in you. That's the mystery of the gospel. That we make statements like this in the church, and we know what we mean when we say it, but we say things like, Jesus lives in my heart. He's come to live on the inside of me. The Bible says this in 2 Corinthians verse 5, chapter 5 and verse 17. And many of you could quote this verse. If you can't, you ought to memorize it. This is a great verse. Therefore, it says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. That's the mystery of the gospel. The new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. There's something miraculous. There's something supernatural that every child of God in this place can testify to. That when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, He gave me His. And He lives on the inside of me. Are there any believers here today? Amen. He lives on the inside of you. It's the mystery of the gospel that all things have become new. Now, here's what I've noticed. Maybe you have too. Most people believe in God. The vast majority are okay with Jesus. What I've noticed, the pushback, it's not with, is there a God? And it's not even with, who was Jesus? <coughs> What people have a problem with is the church. Anybody else notice that to be the case? It's not Jesus that, that offends me. It's his people. I'd go to church if the people weren't there. How many times have you heard 
somebody say something condescending as an excuse for not having a relationship with God. But they don't say it condescending about God. They say it about the church. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people make that right turn so quick in a conversation. I ask them, you know, do they believe in God? Yeah, I I believe in God. Well, do you believe in Jesus as God's son? Yeah, I I believe Jesus is God's son. Well, are you a part of a local church? No, I, I don't, I don't believe in going to church. I mean, there's too many fill in the blank, right? We've all seen it. We've all heard it. God, no problem. Jesus, sure. Son of God, Messiah, Emmanuel. But it's the people (coughs) that they have a problem with. The problem is, the crisis that presents for us is that we are the only picture of Jesus that some people will see. It was Jenny Mayo who made the statement famous, We're called to be Jesus with skin on. We're called to take the the Jesus of the Bible, of the Word of God, of history, and we are to be Jesus incarnate in our world. Not that we're deity, not that we're little gods, but by our character, by our virtue, by our conduct. That when people see us, they are convinced of the mystery of the gospel that God lives inside of us. What does it mean this morning to be called a Christian? Do you know the history of that word? Christian, you take Christ, it means God, Christ, and then add the I-A-N, it's little Christ. You know, when the church was first called Christians, it was actually used as a derogatory term. It was an insult. They called them the people of the way. But in Macedonia, they saw these people of the way who were acting like Jesus and So they were trying to insult them and call them a bunch of little Christs. So they nicknamed them Christians and the name stuck. I know Christianity in a lot of circles has gotten a bad name, but I got to tell you this morning, I don't have any problem being called a little Christ. I do have a problem living up to it sometimes, but I'll gladly wear the name of what it means to be a Christian. In the same way that a picture frame has four sides to emphasize a portrait, I want to give you four ways this morning that we can frame Jesus with our lives. Because you are the portrait that people are looking at. And there are some things that we can do, some things that we must do, to frame Jesus so that others can see him. If you're a note taker, the first one is our works. Good works. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. This verse communicates how important our works are. In fact, it communicates that this is the reason that you are alive today. Check it out. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Did you know that you were created by God to do good works, to do good? Now, I know Salvation Army, they ring the bell and they got the bucket out there and their slogan is doing the most good. And I love the Salvation Army. But the truth is, that should be the slogan of the church, not just one branch of the church. We're supposed to be doing the most good because we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Listen, when you do good, you are fulfilling the mission and the mandate from God on your life. If you're there in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, I want to just briefly back up to verse 8. Because Paul makes it really clear that we're not saved because of these works that we do. But we are saved so that we can do good works. Now, don't get it twisted. Don't get it backwards. We're not saved by good deeds, but we are saved so that we can do good deeds. Verse 8 says this, For it is by grace that you've been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift from God. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. By the way, that gift is under the tree this morning. 
It's available to you. Verse 9, he says, not by works. Salvation is not by works so that no one can boast. It was St. Augustine of Hippo that said, for grace is given not because we have done good works, but in order that we may be able to do them. Can I just tell you this morning that if we're not careful, if we're not careful to prioritize our witness, to prioritize our works as an essential part of the way that we frame Christ for the world to see. If we're not careful, then what happens is all of our songs and all of our celebrations and and even our gatherings in the sanctuary, they become about us and about our personal relationship with God and about what's happening in our hearts. And I want to tell you this morning that every authentic act of worship, it does come from the heart, absolutely. But worship is not limited to the expressions of our heart that go out of our mouth up to God. Worship is as much about what comes out of your hands in acts of service to other people. Can you get a new picture of a posture of worship today? That it's not just this, but it's also this. When we do good works, when we serve other people from a heart of worship, it is every bit as significant in honoring the heart of God. True worship always flows from the heart. But it flows horizontally as well as vertically. In Acts chapter 10, Peter was talking about Jesus. And I I love this description that he gives. Peter said, you know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. Because God was with him. Leave this verse on the screen. This is going to... Challenge us for just a moment. I want you to consider this description of Jesus this morning. And ask yourself. Is that the portrait. That people see in me. Is that the picture. Of Jesus. For those that won't ever. Study the patriarchs. For those that won't ever read the prophecies. For those that won't ever dive into God's word. Is this the picture that they see. Now we might be quick to say, well, I, I can't heal anyone. The Bible says he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. I, I can't heal anyone. But let me ask this. Are you doing good? Are you going around doing good? Because here's what I've discovered about obedience. If we'll be faithful to do the natural, God will show up with the super. So many times we want to disqualify ourselves from obedience to God because it looks like something supernatural is going to have to transpire for any difference to be made. And we don't ever see the super because we don't walk in simple obedience in the natural. We have the same resources. This verse says that God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. We don't have time to to study the baptism in the Holy Spirit this morning. But let me assure you, one of the last things that Jesus said before he ascended back to the Father was he told his disciples to go to Jerusalem and to wait for the promise of the Father. Why? Because he wanted to anoint them with power through the Holy Spirit. He anoints us with power through his Spirit. But then look what it says. And he went around... Doing good. Now here's what I've noticed about most church folk. None of us have a problem with the idea of doing good. In fact, I don't know of anybody that would call themselves a Christian that is in favor of not doing good. But this description of Jesus, it's very evident that he was personally involved. In doing good. It's one thing to say, I think we, we should do good. I, I like when people do good. In fact, I support people that do good financially. It's another thing altogether to say, he went about doing good. When you look at the life of Jesus, you see that he's hands on. He's not talking about some theory. He's not talking about some principle. The Bible reveals that Jesus touched the leper. The Bible reveals that he picked up the sick woman off of her sick bed. 
The Bible reveals that he put his hands in the mud and he touched the eyes of the blind man. Jesus was personally involved. And if we believe this morning in doing good, then let's do it ourselves. Amen? To not just believe in doing good, because believing in doing good changes no one. Can I tell you this morning, no one's being saved by good intentions. Good intentions never fed a hungry person. Good intentions never clothed somebody who was homeless. And so the portrait that many people see of Christ is a theory about goodness. But your works, your good works begin to frame him in such a way that they begin to see the Savior. Look at this familiar verse with me in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 16 says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see. What do they see? Your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. If you want to, you want your life to be a portrait of Christ. You want people to actually know that he's real, that he came, that he conquered death, hell and the grave and that he's alive inside of you. They got to see something. And what they see, Jesus said, is your good deeds. You have to work. You have to work. Our works provide the framework for others to see Jesus. Let me give you the second one this morning. Not only do our works frame him, but our walk frames him today. (coughs) The Bible says in Psalm 37 in verse 23, The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Many of you could quote that verse in the King James Version. It says, the steps of the righteous are ordered by God. He leads and guides our steps. Now, when the Bible talks about your walk, the way you walk, it's not talking about just getting from point A to point B. The Bible is referring to your conduct in every area of your life, whether it's up on the big stages of life or in the small steps of life. The way you walk communicates who you are. In fact, the very first psalm, psalm chapter 1, it begins with instruction about a person who is wise in the way that they walk. It says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or in the steps of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or take company with mockers. Can I just tell you this morning, the way you walk is important to how people see Christ in your life. And not just the way you walk, but who you walk with. This verse tells us that you're blessed if you don't walk in the steps of the wicked. There's blessing There's blessing for you in that. For some of you, you you've maybe looking for the blessing of God in your life, and maybe until this moment you didn't realize, and I hope a light comes on in your heart today, that one of the things that can hinder you from the blessing of God is your choice of associations. Now listen, we're not called to to hide ourselves away in the Smoky Mountains somewhere and just, you know, remove ourselves from from culture and just buy a bunch of canned goods and say we don't want nothing to do with this world. I mean, Jesus left here to be light. He called us to make an impact. I'm not talking about not rubbing shoulders with lost people. That's not even possible unless you're just a hermit. What I'm talking about are the people that you choose to walk in close relationship with. The people that you journey with. The people that you would look at your life and their life and say, we're moving in the same direction. We're walking together. We're not, we're not crossing paths. We're walking together. The Bible communicates there's great blessing for those who make a conscious decision not to walk in the steps of the wicked. <clears throat> when the Bible talks about walking together in Scripture, it refers to close fellowship. For example, in Genesis, we see a picture of close fellowship with God before Adam and Eve sinned. The Bible says God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. He walked with Adam in the garden. Why? Because there was no sin. And so there was close fellowship with God. Genesis 5 talks about a man named Enoch. And the Bible just says this. Here's his whole life story in one verse. Enoch walked faithfully with God. 
He walked with God. That means he had fellowship with God. He had a close relationship with God. Then God says to the people of Israel and to us in Leviticus chapter 26, I will walk among you and I'll be your God and you will be my people. Why? Because God wants us to walk in close fellowship with him. Rhetorical question this morning, but I want you to consider who are you walking with? Who are you walking with in your life right now? Many of you could testify today. You remember the day that that the mystery of the gospel became alive and real in your own life. And nobody had to tell you. You suddenly felt the, the rub when you got around people that you had been walking with before you knew Christ. And suddenly you, you felt the tension and the struggle. And it was it was the elephant in the room. You didn't have to say anything. They didn't have to say anything. It just didn't feel right. The truth is you were uncomfortable with them and they were probably even more uncomfortable with you because the spirit of Christ lives on the inside of you. And the Bible says the spirit of Christ convicts us of sin and unrighteousness. I can't help it if the spirit of Christ in me makes you feel bad about what you did. I don't have to preach at you. I don't have to tell you what's wrong with you. We don't need to clean the fish. We just need to catch them. Amen. Holy Spirit will clean them. We got too many folks in Jesus name trying to clean fish that are still swimming. But people get around you and they say, man, God's done something different. Maybe they wouldn't credit God with it, but they'd say you're different. You're different. Something about you. What it's it's your walk. It's your walk. And sometimes it's a painful process, but you come to the place where you realize that, you know what, I can love that person. I can still befriend them. I can't walk with them anymore. And the reason I can't walk with them is because I turned towards the cross. I'm walking in a different direction. My life goes against the grain. It doesn't mean we don't love them, but we don't walk with them. The Bible says this in Proverbs 13. In verse 20, and this is, this is going to bring freedom to somebody who needs to consider their walk today. The Bible says in Proverbs 13, 20, walk with the wise and become wise. For a company of fools suffers harm. Now that's not deep, but it's revelatory. It's simple to understand. When you walk with the wise, you become wise. You know, the Bible talks in the Old Testament about having your farm animals unequally yoked. In fact, there's a scripture in Deuteronomy. One of those verses that you probably read one morning in your Bible reading program and you thought, what does this have to do with me? (laughs) You know, one of those verses that you're going, man, all these details that what does this have to do with me? This verse in Deuteronomy 22 and 10 was a law that forbid the farmers to yoke an oxen with a donkey. And it's in God's word. But then the apostle Paul comes along in the New Testament and he reveals to us why it's significant to our lives. Paul, thinking about that scripture in Deuteronomy, says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteous and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? He said, when you try to walk with people that are not in in covenant with God, it's like trying to put an ox with a donkey and getting them to work together to plow. Man, their their gait's wrong, their height's wrong. It's, It's all off. It doesn't work. And Paul says that's what it's like when you're trying to Walk in close fellowship with people that are not walking with Christ. James, I love James. He's so blunt. But James says it this way. He said, you adulterous people. Thank you very much. (laughs) Don't you know? He said, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? I just want to say, man, James, tell us how you really feel. He says, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. 
Now, scriptures like this, <laughs> they remind us that God called us to live different than this world. In fact, you read a verse like that, you might think you're not even supposed to have anything to do with the world. Man, I don't want to be an enemy of God. But we need to remember before we crawl in a hole and just sing Kumbaya until Jesus comes, we need to remember where we were when Jesus befriended us. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus said, no greater love has anyone than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. We were his friends when we were still sinners. He died for us. The religious leaders couldn't figure that out. It didn't make sense to them. Why would, why would Jesus hang out with, with sinners when Jesus went and fellowshiped with Levi, the tax collectors? The, the people couldn't make sense of it. Honestly... I have to wonder sometimes why some Christians hang out with sinners too. I mean, I understand why Jesus did. Because Jesus never followed lost people. He invited lost people to follow him. But I do wonder sometimes why some Christians are hanging out with lost people. Because they're not inviting them to follow with their lifestyle They're following the crowd. Can I tell you this morning that the hope of Christmas, this season that we're celebrating, is centered on the promise of light for our path. That's the hope of Christmas. A people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Zechariah sang about it prophetically after his son, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, was born and The Lord opened his mouth for the first time in nine months. He began to prophetically sing God's praises. And this is what Zechariah said. He said, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come from heaven to us, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Let me tell you, the hope of Christmas is that light has come for our path, that we don't have to stumble in darkness. The promise, the good news of Christmas is that the Word was made flesh and made His dwelling among us. Jesus wants to light your path if you'll follow Him. If you'll follow Him, He'll light your path. One more verse about this, and I'll give you the third way that we frame Jesus. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. And know that I'm not preaching down on anyone today. I want you, I want you to see the high calling that we have in Christ. Listen to the clarity of the gospel. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. That's powerful. That says that the way that we walk reveals, it paints a portrait, if you will, of the reality that we can have fellowship with with each other. Not because we have the same things in common, not because we're the same age or that our kids go to the same school together, not because of any of those things. We have fellowship together because we walk in the light. Because we don't have that rub against one another that we feel in the culture. That we feel in those tense, awkward moments with people who are, who are far from God. You don't sense that when you walk in the light. We find when we come into this place that even though we may have nothing in common, and maybe we just met for the first time today, we find unity. What causes that? A personal choice. To walk in the light, it communicates that we have fellowship with one another. But it secondly communicates that the blood of Jesus has purified us from all of our sin. If people are going to see a picture of Christ in you, they're going to see it because your life is framed by your good works and by the way that you walk. Thirdly, let me tell you, we frame Christ with our words. With the words that you say, 
A verse that's familiar to all, all of us, maybe. Proverbs 18, 21. Even if you, you don't know the Bible, you might have heard this verse before. It says, the tongue has the power of life and death. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Can I tell you this morning, your words matter. The power of life and death is in the tongue. Your words matter. And and if we could put it in modern English, we could also say the power of life and death is in your thumbs. Because thanks to social media, everybody gets a microphone. Right? It didn't used to be that way. Not everybody had the luxury of speaking to a large audience. And not only does everybody get a microphone, but everybody gets an immediate audience. I mean, if if I wanted to say something to a large group years ago, I had to make sure I had time with the microphone, but I still had to think about what I wanted to say for a whole week until you came back. But today, as quick as we can react to a circumstance, we can begin to express life or death with our words. And our words create a portrait to a watching world of what Jesus really looks like. Now I gotta say, it's an incredible opportunity that we have. Like no other generation, the gospel can literally go around the world in a fraction of a second. This week I took my phone and I went live on Facebook and I I walked in here and I showed everybody the sanctuary. I looked at that video yesterday. I think six or seven hundred people have watched it. I didn't even know I had six or seven hundred friends on Facebook. I don't actually know how many friends I have on Facebook. But I thought, wow, how incredible that that many people, that hundreds of people saw a testimony of the goodness of God to this church, of what God's doing. There's an incredible opportunity, but it also magnifies For all of us, the incredible responsibility that we have. Your words are powerful. If a picture paints a thousand words, I want to tell you, your words paint a picture of your heart. Jesus said this. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your words paint a picture of your heart. Is your heart full of anger and hostility? Is it full of bitterness and resentment? Do you use your words to to tear other people down or to build them up? Are your words full of purity and praise? Or are your words full of perversion and crude humor? See, the world has a right to take issue with Christians. When the only portrait that they have of the Savior, we say, lives in our heart is seen by the words that overflow out of our heart. And those words are contradictory to our claims. Your words, they matter. They paint a picture of what Jesus is like. If words matter, I think when we look at the first words and the last words of Jesus, it illustrates what mattered most to him. First words of Jesus. Now, I don't know what his first word was. I'd like to think it was Abba, (laughs) Daddy. But his first recorded words we have written down in Luke's gospel. And it was when he was about 12 years old and his parents had thought he was with the caravan leaving Jerusalem. And in fact, he had stayed in the temple. Three days later, they found him. And when they showed up frantic and wondering where he was, the first recorded words we have of Jesus, he said, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? I love the fact that the first thing we hear from Jesus in in the incarnate flesh is that he said, hey, I have to be busy doing my father's work. You should have known that about me by the time I'm 12 years old. And the last words that we have of Jesus before he died on the cross was a prayer saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The last thing that he said before he died was essentially, God... My whole life is committed to fulfilling your purpose of saving the lost. I commit myself right to my last breath to you. 
And then the last words that Jesus said before he ascended to heaven. The last thing he spoke while he was still on the earth in the flesh. In his resurrected body. He said to his disciples and to us. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Tell people the good news. That ought to communicate to us what was at the heart of Jesus. His words painted a picture of what mattered most to him. It was the souls of men. And that leads me to the last thing I want to tell you this morning about how we frame Jesus so that a world who's not reading his story can see his reflection in the face of his people. We do it with our good works. We do it with the way we walk, with our conduct, with our lifestyle. We do it in our words. But when I think about what was near and dear to the heart of Jesus, there's a scripture that comes to mind. I want you to see it on the screen. It's in Psalm 126, verse 5 and 6 tells us, Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. We frame Jesus with our lives. By our weeping. What do I mean by that? What I mean is, what are you passionate about? What are you so passionate about that that it brings tears to your eyes? What makes your heart beat a little faster? What what drives you? What would cause you to weep? I've stood at the altar many times next to many of groom. And I've seen a a tear trickle out of their eye as they saw their bride appear in the back of the church. There's a lot of things that people cry about, that they're passionate about. I mean, I I know a lot of Eagles fans. A lot of criers. I had to do that. I'm sorry, guys. I'm not talking about emotionalism. And that's all that is. And I'm the same way with my team's. What I'm talking about is something deeper. I'm talking about what stirs your heart. What makes you, what makes you weep? What's the thing that's big enough to become a cause in your life? In Luke chapter 19, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem for the last time. He knows the cross is before him. And the Bible says in Luke 19 in verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an Bankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls. <clears throat> they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Can you picture it in your mind? Jesus is looking over Jerusalem and he's weeping. He's weeping because he knows This prophecy that he just declared is going to be fulfilled in A.D. 70. People are going to come in and they're going to destroy the city. Not one stone will be left on top of another. And he's weeping for them because they did not recognize the time of God's coming. Jesus came. He was born in Bethlehem. He lived a sinless life. He did miracles, signs and wonders. He preached He died a sacrificial death on the cross and he was raised victorious to life. And he looked at Jerusalem and he said, you missed it. You missed it. Let me ask you, what makes you weep this morning? Jesus understood the ramifications of missing the day of their visitation. Of missing his offer of salvation. Consequently, nothing portrays his heart more than a church that is passionate about the cause of Christ. 
This is the cause that's near and dear to him. This is the cause that drove him all the way to Calvary. When was the last time your soul was stirred for lost people? When was the last time you cried hot tears of intercession for somebody that doesn't know Jesus? Because the reality is the picture that our complacency paints on the canvas of our lives is that the gospel really doesn't matter. When we're complacent, when we're nonchalant, when we could care less about those who are dying around us and going into a Christless eternity, what we portray with our lives is that the gospel doesn't really matter. That Jesus really isn't the only hope for the world. That he's not the way, the truth, the life, the only way to get to God. We portray that his return is not imminent. That there's plenty of time. But when our hearts get stirred, when our hearts get stirred for the things that stir his heart, when we sow with tears the gospel, the promise of Psalm 126 is that we will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, that doesn't mean making a spectacle of yourself. Not in a literal sense do we have to go out like we're singing some dirge or that we're mourning. No, but we go out with passion in our heart, having prayed prayers of intercession, being gripped with conviction that today is the day of salvation. That no man is guaranteed tomorrow. That this is the moment. That just as he came, he's coming again. And we don't want anyone to miss the hour of his visitation. And when we go with weeping in our souls, the promise is that we'll return with songs of joy, carrying the sheaves with us, bringing in the harvest, bringing in those who we've gone and shared Christ with. I want to challenge you as we close this service today to just consider for a moment again, what portrait are you painting of Jesus? If you're the only Bible that they ever read, Is he a savior who can change your life? If you're the only version of the scripture, would they believe through you that Jesus came to give life to the fullest? What portrait are we painting as a church? When people look at us, are they convinced? Are they convinced of the savior? At the end of this service, I want us to pray together. And I was praying about how how we should do this today. And what I feel in my heart is that I just want to open these altars for a moment. And we don't typically do this. This is a very broad invitation for anybody that can and that is willing. In just a moment, I want to invite you to come and to join me in these altars. And the prayer is that got to be personal first, but then corporate. That God let the picture of our life... Let the testimony of our good works, of our walk, of our conduct, of the words that we say, and of the things that we're passionate about, the things that move our heart. Lord, let it communicate a picture. Let us, let me, God, frame Jesus so that those who see me see Christ in me. Jesus said, be doers of the word. Not hearers only. For some of us today, that's the, that's the real challenge. That's the missing piece. We need to begin to do the work. To not just be an advocate of good works, but to go about doing good works. For some of us, you need to pray about your walk. Listen, Jesus didn't save you so he could have visitation rights on Sunday. If your idea of a relationship with God is coming to visit him on the weekend. Then you've missed what it means. To have him make all things new. He wants to live in every aspect of your life. He wants you to walk with him. 
Jesus walked so close to the Father that he said, I only do the things the Father tells me to. He wants all of your life. Let him adjust your walk today. Even if it means making some tough decisions about walking away from some situations. Let the Spirit challenge you today with your words. If all we knew about you was what we saw on your social media feed or what you talked about in the break room, would that be enough? Would that be a clear enough picture to know who Jesus is? Some of you just need to make a conscious decision. Say, you know what? I'm going to start talking about my Lord. I'm going to start talking. I'm going to go public with my faith. And maybe it's a, another commitment that says, you know what, I, I got I to gotta watch my words, man. I, I just, I just kind of let it fly. I say what I feel and, and I think nothing of it. But listen, your words matter. They matter. Whoever said sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me, I think they were deaf. Words matter. They inflict deep wounds. And they bring healing. The power of life and death is in your tongue. And for some of us, we need, we need God to teach us how to weep again for what he weeps over. <laughs> to not be so consumed and preoccupied with the frivolous things that, that occupy our minds and our time, but to really go back to our prayer bones and to really go back to a place of intercession and to really begin to see people the way that Jesus sees them. And maybe that's the prayer for you today. God, give me eyes to see people the way that you see them. Not on levels of goodness or badness, but simply lost and found. Jesus' disciples looked at him one day as he was clearing the temple, he had made a whip and he was turning over the tables of the money changers. And they remembered when they saw his passion, what the prophet had said, zeal for your house has consumed me. Jesus was zealous. He was passionate for God's house. What does your passion communicate as a picture of who Jesus is in your life? I want to invite you to stand.